Hello, and welcome to the second Shawbrook podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Neveling, the editor of Real Deals, and on today's program, we will be discussing how the emergence of Unitranche has transformed acquisition finance markets over the last five to 10 years, and what this means for the future. Over less than a decade, Unitranche has grown from a quirky debt offering provided by a few new market entrants into the financing structure of choice for the majority of mid-market deals. Unitranche lenders ripped up the acquisition finance rulebook, shedding the need for amortization and certain covenants, and simplifying capital structures through the provision of one piece of debt at a single price point. It has helped direct lenders to hoover up market share from the once dominant high street banks and opened up the market for a new generation of debt funds and challenger banks. To help understand why Unitranche has been so disruptive and why sponsors have taken it up so readily, I'm joined by two guests. Jen Murray leads the Unitranche offering at Shawbrook Bank. Jen has worked in the leveraged and acquisition finance market for more than a decade and held senior financial sponsor-facing roles at RBS and Clydesdale before joining Shawbrook to launch its Unitranche product earlier this year. Since launching the offer, Jen has already closed her first three deals, providing finance for transactions backed by Alcuin, Kangol, and most recently, Rutland Partners. Jen, we're going to discuss the reasons for launching a bank-led Unitranche product a bit later. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you if you could just sketch out how, how Unitranche developed in the first place and what its impact has been on the wider acquisition finance market for both financial sponsors and indeed lenders. Sure. I think um, the emergence of Unitranche really started just after the, the financial crash, 2008-2009. Um, there were obviously big teams uh, sitting in the clearing banks uh, doing leverage finance. There was a definitely um, post-crash a retrenching by those banks. Um, banks started to become a lot more picky around, for example, which sectors they were willing to play in, which sponsors they were willing to back. And at that point, you had a number of credit funds in the market um, with you know, significant money to spend and to deploy and looking for you know, decent returns. Um, they, they looked around the market and obviously saw the opportunity not just to do perhaps what they'd previously done, um, junior debt or a bit of mezzanine, but actually to go in and wholesale, start financing, um, start financing businesses. It very much disrupted the market. Um, they came in and decided to do the end-to-end piece. They obviously, funds have very di- different touch points and different sensitivities to the banks. Uh, for example, they, they want to get lent and stay lent. So the Unitranche product really suited them. Um, and, and equally, you know, the banks uh, for a time really struggled to compete. These guys came in and, and really changed, changed the game. I'm also joined by Katie McMiniman, who is a lawyer at Travis Smith. Um, Katie has been with the firm for nine years where she qualified and she's been working in the finance uh, team where she advises both lenders and sponsors um, on financing packages for mid-market private equity deals. Katie, it's lovely to have you here. Um, If you had to look back at the private equity deals you have worked on over the last year, what percentage would you estimate had a Unitranche structure? And to what extent would you say all structures now mimic Unitranche in some respect? Hi, Nick. Nice to be here. The answer to that question probably depends on which sort of end of the the mid-market you're looking at. So definitely at the upper end, percentage-wise, you're looking at sort of 60, 70% Unitranche deals and probably a higher percentage than that have some feature um, that mimics Unitranche, whether that's a non-amortising TLB, uh, cov light, cov loose type terms, which um, are more akin to the sort of Unitranche package. 
at the sort of lower end of the mid-market, um, there's a much lower percentage of what you might call uni-tranche deals. Having said that, all of those sort of borrower-friendly, um, cove-loose, cove-light type terms are starting to trickle down, um, even into sort of club deals populated still by the clearers. Um, we're seeing sponsors expect to achieve those types of terms um, even on the, the smaller deals. Um, so Unitranch has touched the whole of that sort of mid-market space um, and there's Unitranch features even in deals that aren't styled as sort of straight Unitranch packages. So it varies, but it's definitely it's definitely changed the space um, over the last five years. Okay, really interesting. Thank you, Katie. And I now really want to just dig into where the market is now and how it could evolve in, in the future. Jen, I suppose an obvious place to start is with, is with your new project here at, at Shawbrook. Um, as a bank lender, what was the thinking behind launching a, a Unitranche product, which I suppose would normally be associated with, with the fund offer? One of the challenges we faced when we, we first thought about launching a product in the leverage finance space and mid-market was, you know, how, how do you possibly differentiate yourselves? Uh, there are, say, 150 debt funds out there. There's all the clearers that are still very active. How do you do something different? And I guess where we saw the opportunity was, as Katie's touched on, particularly in the low open market, things are not quite so cookie cutter. Um, and there seems to be a bit of a gap where perhaps, you know, some of the debt funds don't really get out of bed for less than, you know, 15, 20 million tickets. And yet you have some of the clearers who would have appetite in that space. But the process of actually lending money um, hasn't changed dramatically in terms of delivery um, in the last 10 years, bluntly. So we saw an opportunity to really bridge the gap between what the debt funds are doing and what the clearing banks are doing, both in terms of what we offer, offering the Unitranche bullet style debt that the funds can do, um, but equally being able to offer all of the flexibility that a bank might more typically do. So for example, working capital facilities, capex facilities, accordions, um, and, and really provide a bit of a one-stop shop for that end of the market. Uh, and in terms of delivery too, you know, we're, we're a relatively small bank and I think being able to deliver in a way that's a bit more like a fund is something that not many people are, are doing. So we, we try to take advantage of the fact we have small lines of communication um, and experienced people on deals and, you know, can, can basically deliver a bit more like a fund. Hey, Jim, I mean, just what are your observations on that and was it surprising to see a bank position they're, they're offering this way? Or, or do you think this could be, you know, the beginning of even sort of the bigger high street banks starting to go along the similar, going down a similar path and and almost reformulating their product to be more Unitranche-like than it even is now? As, as Jen touched on earlier, there definitely was a time when the clearers were, were starting to question where, where they sat in the market. Um, Credit funds were able to write big checks um, at, at high-end leverage levels um, and uh, some high street banks were starting to question whether their role was being reduced to a super senior RCF as a relationship lend. I think we've seen um, all of the high street banks uh, do a really good job of, of sort of fighting back, if you like, um, and modifying their offering so that they take what, what the sponsors might see as the sort of best features of, of the credit funds and mould that together with um, what they need from a from a day-to-day -day high street lender, whether that's ancillary facilities, whether that's relationship banking. Um, 
things that for credit funds are perhaps more difficult to deliver just because of the way they're set up. So I wasn't surprised um, to hear uh, Shawbrook um, put out an offering that basically summed up that that change in the market that we're seeing high street banks look to to give their sponsors um, the best bits of the uni tranche offering combined with um, what they need from their sort of day-to-day relationship lenders. Really interesting, Katie, and I just wanted to follow that up with another question to you. You know, how far can they actually go given the sort of various regulatory obligations that they are under? And, you know, if we look at the market more broadly, uh, how flexible can a bank be when compared to a fund? And at what point do the banks start bumping against red lines that maybe the funds don't necessarily have? I think it's a really interesting point. Um, And I suppose it depends what you mean by flexibility and what Mm -hmm. a sponsor um, thinks of as as valuable flexibility. Definitely um, high street banks um, and and clearing banks are going to have to consider their regulatory obligations in a way that is different for credit funds, maximum leverage levels, focuses on um, things like difficulties in giving portability, um, needing financial covenants, needing maintenance covenants as opposed to incurrence-based controls. They are always going to be things that for credit teams in banks are and remain important. Um, I think leverage teams, certainly in the mid-market, have done a good job of, of, of challenging that internally where they can um, and and gaining flexibility for sponsors where it makes sense. But I think they are always going to stand apart from credit funds who can write very large checks um, at very high leverage levels. And probably in the, in the upper mid-market and large cap deals, credit funds will continue to dominate um, because they can um, they can do away with those types of controls, which for the much larger deals are going to be really important for sponsors. What the high street banks and providers like Shawbrook are doing a good job of is um, focusing their sponsors' minds on do you need those types of flexibilities on this deal um, or on this deal? Um, is the package we're offering actually um, giving you the flexibility you need with the added benefits of some of the relationship side of, of the banking relationship, which for some of your smaller deals and smaller um, investee companies might be more important in their growth story. Okay, really, uh, some really interesting points there, Katie. And maybe, Jenny, if I could just come back to you on, on that same point. Your response to what, what Katie's observations are about how a you as a bank have have been able to build a unit tranche offer at the same time as respecting the you know the red lines that you obviously have to you know be cognizant of sure i mean i think you're never going to get away from the fact bluntly that banks are probably always going to need perhaps you know two covenants for example <laughs> in a yeah. transaction where a fund might need one mm-hmm. that looks and feels more like a maintenance covenant but that's quite a simplistic view of what flexibility means to a management team in a growing business. An ambitious management team in a business that wants to grow um, and you know needs investment from the sponsor, uh, what they're really looking for, I think, is flexibility and responsiveness from their lending partner. So something that may look you know, a little more flexible on day one, is that ultimately more important to them than being able to pick up the phone mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, any day of the week um, to a bank to request an increase in, for example, a working capital facility or a little bit more money for CapEx as the business evolves and being able to have that kind of live conversation. Certainly from our perspective, rather than focusing on you know, particularly 
you know, the wording, sort of having arguments about everything in the document that's done on day one. Um, what we're trying to do is, is be a much more sort of supportive, ongoing, flexible relationship that can support a business through three to five years. One of the criticisms of certainly the, the bigger banks is that they have been very um, cookie cutter in their approach yeah. and you either tick the box or you don't. Has that been an area where you've been able to perhaps take a different approach as a, you know, as a challenger bank and, and look at each deal on its merits, take the sponsor behind the deal into account? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, just any, any observations about how you've looked at those questions as a way to deliver the flexibility that we've been speaking about? Well, certainly out and about in the market, when you talk to sponsors um, and the conversations we've had, I think we're all in the same boat to an extent in that everyone's looking to perhaps find the less obvious deal um, or investment opportunity. And, you know, with those opportunities, as sponsors, for example, are spending a lot of time thinking about how they go and originate deals that aren't cookie cutter auction processes. And inevitably with those, many of them at this end of the market are owner managed. They may have had a blip in trading. They may be in a sector that isn't, as you rightly say, maybe a bit of a computer says no for a bank. But if you know if a sponsor can bring a lot of operational expertise to bear and they are prepared to invest the time and really understand the story behind that business and think about how they can, if not turn it around, then really sort of you know turbo boost the growth over the next three to five years, whether that's you know, acquisitions or organic growth, then I think there's a bit of an opportunity for us to actually sit alongside that sponsor and really try and spend some time getting under the skin of that story um, and, and support that. And, and I think it's probably fair to say, you know, of the three deals we've closed, um, you know, one of them has some links to, for example, the oil and gas sector, mm -hmm. which may be a bit computer says no. Um, you know, the Rutland transaction requires quite a lot of capital investment over quite a long period of time. And with both of those transactions, you know, we've, we've really spent time with sponsors and perhaps they are, you know, not transactions that would be obvious slam dunks, but we've managed to get comfortable with them. That leads us nicely on to, to a question I had about differentiation. Um, Katie, there are so many providers in the market right now. It seems that there's a, a new debt fund launching almost every week. They're obviously all fighting for the same deals. Um, is it realistic for, for a lender to even try and stand out from the crowd and win deals without being the one that is having to put out the cheapest package on the weakest terms? So I think it's a really interesting point. Um, there definitely is uh, a lot of uh, dry powder in terms of credit funds, ability to deploy cash um, in the market, and they are inevitably putting pressure in terms of pricing and leverage levels on providers across the market. And there definitely is, um, as you'd expect from sponsors, a focus on achieving the best terms in terms of documentary terms on all of their deals, even when, when we're looking at sort of the lower end of the mid-market. Having said that, I think um, some of the traditional um, providers, along with some of the, the newer credit funds, have been quite inventive in setting themselves apart um, on indices other than pricing, how big a check they can write. Um, and they've identified that to sponsors, there are other things that are important. Um, so what we hear from a lot of our sponsor side clients, even when comparing debt packages um, from different providers is that extra turn of leverage may actually not be the most important point for them. Um, 
a few basis points um, may not be the the deciding factor um, when choosing a provider to go with. Actually, it may be the strength of the relationship with that provider um, having a known quantity in terms of their lender actually provides a lot of comfort to sponsors. Um, they do want a diversity of lenders across their investee companies and they want people who they think they can rely on to be there for the businesses, not just now, but um, through through the life cycle of, of the business, but also through the credit cycle. Jen, when you were formulating the, the offer here at, at, at Shawbrook, was that sort of front of mind for you, the fact that this is a you know very crowded market, there, there's a lot of choice for for sponsors out there and, and did that thought in any way inform the way you have set up your, your offer to the market? Absolutely. I think the big challenge for us was how do you take the best of both worlds? How do you take the best of what it means to be a fund and the best of what it means to be a clearing bank and try and bring something a little bit different to market? How mm -hmm. do you think about it differently? Um, at the end of the day, I guess, you know, the challenge for us is we've launched something that feels a little bit different, feels a bit unusual in terms of this one-stop shop offer. But actually, anybody can come along and in 24 hours copy that product. They can copy the what. And then it really comes down to, okay, how do you deliver it in such a way that you have something that's sustainable that you can build on? And that really delivers to, you know, not only the sponsors, but management teams, what they actually need and want. And I think, you know, some of that obviously comes down to things we've already touched on, speed of delivery, quick decision making. Um, just frankly, you know, doing what the funds do really well, being on the end of the phone 24 hours a day if we need to be, and giving quick answers, giving clarity and deliverability quickly. Um, but equally, you know, once the transaction's done, um, having, you know, local presence, boots on the ground, you know, having that ongoing, flexible, close relationship and that responsiveness. And, that, and that's where it feels like hopefully there is a chance to do something different, to get away from the classic stereotypes of, you know, your very formal bankers in bowler hats who move very slowly and, and I've been one. <laughs> um, and equally, you know, funds who are very good at what they do um, tend to be on the end of a phone, but perhaps when a deal's done aren't, you know, as involved. So um, really trying to create something a little bit different is, is the challenge, but, you know, it feels like there's a gap. And if you look at the fact that I guess we started in January and we've, we've closed three deals already and, and have a pretty busy pipeline, it feels like there is appetite in the market for something a bit different. Okay, one last question to you both. Um, and it's a more general question about the, the wider state of the market. Um, Katie, maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll come to you first on this one. Um, we've just discussed how, how the market has become uh, very competitive, etc. Do you think that lenders are pricing risk appropriately um, when the market is, is indeed so, so intermediated, so competitive, and I guess it can be a race to the bottom in, in, in some respects? Is there anything, anything we should be worried about? <laughs> um, I think, as I say, I think lenders have actually um, taken a step back and thought quite carefully um, about the direction of the market and what all the competition means. Um, and what we're seeing in terms of new entrants, um, particularly on the on the credit side, is rather than focusing on on being able to necessarily write the biggest checks or provide the most competitive terms in terms of pricing, um, actually they've sought to set themselves apart by having a particular strategy. So whether it's sector focused, whether it's um, part of the market size of deals, we've seen credit funds not dissimilar to. To Shawbrook's strategy, focusing on that sort of lower end of the market. 
And I think that is all a response to people being conscious of the fact, particularly of where we are in the credit cycle and particularly in the UK with all the uncertainty that we're facing, that purely a race to the bottom in, in terms of um, price and terms is, is potentially not the best way to return value to anybody's investors. I think providers have been thinking carefully um, about the deals they're doing. I think um, uh, whilst there is a lot of competition for a lot of deals, I don't think um, we're quite seeing the heady days of, of perhaps um, pre-2008 where you might question whether credit decisions and pricing points were, were in exactly the right place. Um, I think people are still a little bit more reticent and thoughtful um, when picking their deals. Jane, what are your thoughts? Well, it's interesting. It's an interesting challenge when you're setting something up from scratch, particularly in something as binary as leverage finance. <laughs> Because let's be honest, if something goes wrong, you're probably going to lose some money, um, and that you could, you know, employ a lot of time messing around with pricing models and perfecting them. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you just need one or two to, to you need to get it wrong once or twice. And if it's one of your, you know, first six deals, you have a big problem. So I think, as you know, again, sort of coming back to some of what Katie said, for us, it's much more about actually really understanding if it is something a little more complex or a little more quirky how do you align your interests with those responses because you know their minds are going to be very much focused on their own returns how do we make sure we're we're really in it together we understand you know if something goes wrong um how will they work with us to correct it or to get over that bump um all of these things are are far more important to us frankly than a than a headline price because at the end of the day you can put an, an extra sort of 25 bips on a margin <laughs> but you know what's the what's the weight of equity behind you what's the desire to see this business grow and succeed um, you know how incentivized a management how incentivized is the sponsor how significant an investment is it for that sponsor these questions are exponentially more important to us than a headline price Jennifer Katie thank you very much it's been a real pleasure speaking to you both and to all the listeners, thank you very much for your time. I think we'll wrap it up there.